Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. The Food and Drug Administration exists to certify the safety and effectiveness of drugs. But they go farther than that by restricting the exchange of information about drugs that today's guest says could be very helpful to patients who are ill. Now, my guest is Michael Cannon. He's the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato University, at Cato Institute. Michael, welcome to Of Consuming Interest. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is a fascinating subject because I think your organization recently held um, a meeting on this whole business of what you call the FDA gag rule. So would you define what that is for us, please? So, sure, I'd be happy to. So what happens is the Food and Drug Administration exists to make sure that all the drugs and medical devices that make it to the market are both safe, they're not going to hurt patients, and that they work, so that they are actually going to improve health rather than let consumers buy drugs or medical devices that are are all hype and no help. Mm-hmm. All that's a good thing. And so, and so the way the FDA does this is they require a certain amount of testing before they will give marketing approval to a drug or medical device. But then once that drug is on the market, the FDA doesn't regulate how doctors or patients use that drug. Doctors can prescribe that drug for whatever they want, any, any purpose at all. And in some specialties like cancer, doctors will take a drug approved for one cancer and they'll try it for other cancers for which it has not been approved. And that is how uh, they develop new uh, treatment regimens. And it happens all uh, uh, outside of the FDA's approval process. And yet... Uh, the Food and Drug Administration, because it says that you know you have to uh, get approval from us if you, if you want to market a drug for a particular use, it not only tells the drug companies you have to go through all this testing in order to get the initial approval of a drug, but if you want to have an additional use of that drug approved, it has to go through all that additional testing. And so you cannot tell people about a promising new use of a drug until you get approval from us. And that is the FDA's gag rule. When the FDA says about a drug that's already on the market, people are already using it, doctors are already prescribing even for a certain use, when the FDA says to drug companies, you cannot tell people that doctors are prescribing a drug for that use or that it shows promise, uh, you can't... Um, well, now, summarize studies that have, have been published in the medical literature and send, right. that to, uh, the, and send that to doctors because they see that as marketing. And really what's happening here is what is what, what happens with that sort of speech, what we call off-label speech, speech about uh, uses of a drug that are not on the label, that are mm-hmm. off-label. Okay. That's an alternative means of certifying that a drug works. And the FDA hates that competition, and so they gag manufacturers of these drugs and also medical technologies, uh, other medical technologies, in order to block competition uh, uh, for the FDA. So, so what you what? Let me make, make sure I understand this. So, I get a drug approved for treating a particular type of cancer. That's been established. It's gone through all the procedures. Doctors are using it, and then some doctors say, "Well, you know, maybe this would work on this similar type of cancer for which it's not approved." So they try it. They use it for that particular thing, and they find it effective with their patients. So, are they in effect breaking the law? 
Are the doctors breaking the law by prescribing that drug? No, yeah. not at all. Okay, so it's only when you start the manufacturer starts trying to promote the fact that the drug can be used for a second kind of cancer that we run into the gag rule. Is that tr- correct? That is correct. And it's really problematic because, as you may recall from eighth grade civics, that we have uh, something in uh, in the Constitution called the First Amendment that says Congress shall make no law uh, restricting the freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And this that's exactly what the FDA is doing here. It is restricting truthful, non-misleading information mm-hmm. about uh, legal uh, goods and service or legal legal products that are that are on the market. And so. I think that this really sort of indicts the entire model that we use, uh, the, mm-hmm. the FDA's model for certifying drug safety and efficacy. If you have to restrict speech, truthful, non-misleading speech, in order to to preserve the the scheme you have created to certify the safety and efficacy of mm-hmm. drugs, then I think you need to reevaluate how it is you're going about that and see if there's a way that of of providing consumers the protections they need that don't infringe on speech. Because, remember, the, the purpose of the First Amendment is that the truth will out, that, that suppressing speech mm-hmm. doesn't mean you'll get more truth. It actually means probably you'll get less truth because you are uh, 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 restricting the ability of people to bring new information to the market and evaluate that and weigh that against what we used to know. So, so, so as I said, this really does, I think, indict the entire, uh, well, the Michael, entire scheme. What would, it ta- what would it take to get this changed so that um, – is there any possibility of it getting being changed? Because I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so there's a drug out there that might help me, but I don't know about it because the manuf- it's an off-label use and the manufacturer can't promote it. They can't promote it to doctors. They can't do anything to let me know about it. The only way I might find out about it is if I go to a doctor who's, who's tuned in to all that's going on. So that means that that I'm losing out on some treatment that might really help me even prolong my life, ease my pain or whatever. Um, what does what does it require to make a change here? Is it a change in the whole structure of the FDA? Is it uh, legislation? What what is necessary to to at least get some softening of this kind of uh, ruling? Well, I, I think what you would need is either you would need a, a federal court to say these are restrictions on uh, these restrictions on truthful, non-misleading speech are unconstitutional, and the FDA can no longer punish uh, manufacturers of medical technologies uh, who disseminate truthful, non-misleading information about their own products. And, mm-hmm. and I think that would uh, that would deal with this part, uh, or this problem with the uh, with the FDA's regulatory regime. Uh, you could also uh, solve this through an act of Congress, and uh, and that would certainly be difficult to do. And one of the because it's supposed to be difficult to get uh, a bill through Congress, but one of the challenges here uh, to doing that is the FDA does have an argument that they can make in their favor in favor of these speech restrictions, and that argument is well, look. If you want to make sure that new drugs and medical devices are both safe and effective, 
it, you're going to need testing, okay? Mm-hmm. Medicine is, is incredibly complex. The human body is incredibly complex. You can't just say, oh, one person took this drug and had a good outcome, therefore this drug works. You need to test it in lots, thousands sometimes, uh, thousands of people in order, and even in order to identify whether it works. And even then, you can't really be sure. Um, uh, there's always some uncertainty involved. But the FDA can argue... If you allow people to promote these secondary uses of uh, of drugs outside of the FDA's approval process without this sort of testing, then a lot of people are going to be given a, a lot of false hope uh, because some of those secondary uses won't work, won't and we work. won't know that until we do all of this all of this testing. Right. Let's just so take that's a let's, that's, so let's, that's the FDA's argument, and it's it's going to be they're they're going to deploy that argument, and that'll make it very difficult to get a bill through Congress. I see. So However, let me let me just let me just interrupt you. I'm sorry. I need to take a break here and let our listeners know that they're tuned in to of consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is Michael Cannon. He's the director of health policy studies at Cato Institute. And we're talking about the medical approval, the process for devices and, and medicine approval through the FDA and and what is the restrictions on speech, as, as Michael sees it, particularly a First Amendment right. Well, Michael, what you're saying to me doesn't offer me a whole big lot of hope that this is going to change. And and I, I can see kind of both sides of the issue that the, the agency doesn't want to to provide false hope, as you say, and and the, but the the doctors want to help their patients, and the manufacturer wants to expand the use of their medicine in the community. Are are we at a standstill here? I don't know the word a standstill. I mean, I I, I think there's uh, that these this gag rule is ripe for legal challenge, and I think that I see. there are legal you know there on are the legal First Amendment right through right um, and. And the more those, the more of those legal challenges we have, the more they make their way through the courts. The more they keep in the public spotlight. Mm-hmm. These really ridiculous examples of the FDA uh, restricting truthful, non-misleading speech. Right. The the more we're preparing the ground for some sort of legislative. I see. So solution. you think it's a process that's going to take a while, and it's going to it's going to work its way through eventually, hopefully. What from what you're telling me? Well, let's 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 move on to uh, talking about some of the other things that are happening in the the drug approval process. First off, I'd like to get a brief overview. What is it? What is required of a manufacturer who's spent millions? of dollars, probably conservatively, um, on developing a, a new medicine. And that process, that then they have to go through for approval at the, F, the FDA. What is that process? I mean, I, not, not, in, not in real detail, but can you give us an overview of what is required of the, of the manufacturer of that drug? Well, generally speaking, the manufacturer has to... Um, file an application with the FDA for the approval of a new drug. Mm -hmm. And along with that application, they have to provide data from uh, several studies, small studies to establish the drug is safe, small studies to establish the drug is effective, and then usually two very large studies, maybe with thousands of patients each, to establish with even more certainty that the drug is both safe and effective. And this is where a lot of the cost of getting a new drug mm-hmm. approved comes in. Because not only are those studies expensive in terms of money, they're expensive in terms of time. When a 
we manufacture patents a new drug, they get about 20 years of, of what we call marketing exclusivity, or, or that's the patent life of the mm-hmm. drug. And the time it takes to get through the FDA's approval process counts against that patent life. Oh. And so by the time, sometimes it can take 15 years to get a drug through the FDA approval process at a cost of $1 or $2 billion, by the way. Wow. You're, you're, you're right. Millions is conservative. And so by the time the drug gets approved, well, then the drug company has um, a, a huge incentive to charge as much as it possibly sure. can to cover all of those, uh, all, all the money that it's been burning for the last 15 or more years. And, and so that's basically what's required, uh, uh, 15 years and a billion or more dollars in order to get a drug approved. Well, my husband has been participating in a trial uh, at the University of Virginia, and uh, this trial involved a procedure uh, for repairing the tricuspid valve without having to do open-heart surgery. They call it a percutaneous, where they go in through the groin and the neck and and these little little wires and things, and they replaced a valve. And, and he was really quite ill two years ago. We're about to have a two-year checkup, and he's doing great, which is wonderful. But he, we were lucky to get him into the trial. But how do people find out about trials, and what generally is, are the qualifications for getting someone into a trial? Well, it, unless there are a new medical device involved in your husband's uh, in that procedure, then we're talking about a totally different process for regulating surgeries versus drugs and medical oh, Okay, devices. okay. The then FDA, I don't mean to I don't mean to segue into that. I really well, but this is actually fascinating because okay. the FDA does drugs and medical devices and requires those uh, those those uh, very large trials. Whereas in order to get in order to perform a new surgery, you don't need to go through nearly as much. Uh, testing because the FDA doesn't regulate that. Who regulates it is generally institutional review boards at the hospitals or other uh, institutions. No, this was, this is a new, this is a new little gadget that repairs the valve. I see. Well, then that is a medical device. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would yeah, be regulated it is. by the FDA. It is, right. It is an FDA trial. That is no question about right. it. Right. And so you asked the question, uh, uh, why would they be excluding some people from those trials? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is, uh, I guess the main reason is, to reduce uncertainty. The more variation you have in the patient population that's in the trial, the more likely it is that any result you get could be a result of the fact that uh, you, you had a, a number of people over age 65 in the trial or something other than the intervention, the, the medical device and mm-hmm. the surgery, that led to that good or bad outcome. And so, uh, and in addition to that, the manufacturer of, of this medical device will want to have uh, people involved in the trial who are otherwise as healthy as can be because that'll improve their odds right. of good outcome. Of course. And that's so, that's they want they want good outcome in order to get it approved. So And and what that means though is that because the FDA won't let you access that uh, that new medical device until after the trials are conducted and they've uh, the FDA has poured over the data and finally approved uh, that device if you're not in one of those trials, if you don't qualify for one of those trials, then you don't get access to that new mm-hmm. medical technology until years down the road, and a lot of people die in the meantime. Yet the FDA still tells them, no, you can't have that drug, you can't have that medical device, uh, even though you, you could be a terminally ill patient with no other hope, who's, who's exhausted all the available treatments, the FDA will still tell people, no, you cannot have that treatment, and a lot of people 
uh, die uh, waiting for treatment. Waiting for it, waiting for it to be approved. Yeah, we're going to talk about that uh, in a minute, but I wanted to follow up with uh, asking you, who sets the parameters of the trials? Is that done by the manufacturer, or in this case, the manufacturer of the device, or is that done by the FDA? Who sets the parameters of who's going to be allowed into this trial? Well, it's all done, in effect, by the FDA, because the FDA uh, holds uh, it has the final word over whether the manufacturer can bring that drug or device to market. Mm-hmm. So unless the manufacturer satisfies the FDA, the FDA won't let them bring it to market. Now, that means that the manufacturer might come up with uh, it, it, its own study design. It might uh, might be making some of the decisions uh, about the study design, mm-hmm. but they're always doing it uh, with an eye toward what will the FDA approve. So if they're excluding gotcha. people with multiple comorbidities from a right. trial, they they want to they want to make sure they make it through it. We need to. This time is flying by, Michael. We need to take a break here uh, to let our listeners know that they're tuned into of consuming interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. You're listening to A Consuming Interest right here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. My guest is Michael Cannon. He's the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. And we're talking about the approval process at the FDA and how it affects patients, particularly people who are terminally ill. Well, my husband, they did not want to accept him at first because of his age. And we were trying to avoid him having open heart surgery. And he really was... I think he would not be with us today if he hadn't gotten into this trial. Um, So I'm extremely grateful that they actually waived the age limit. I suggested to them, look, why don't you meet my husband? Why don't you see what he's capable of? I mean, he'd been a man who was going to the gym five days a week. He was in great shape, except suddenly his heart valve decided it wasn't going to work right. And, you know, that caused some serious ramifications in your body. So the net result here is they did. Uh, extend the age limit to let him in. And he's kind of their poster boy. They're absolutely delighted with what's gone on with him. So I guess there's my story is to take heart with people and to to press forward if you think you possibly could be benefited by a trial. Try to get in it, right? Uh, It's actually a tough call. Yeah, because uh, uh, a lot of times uh, uh, drugs and devices, new drugs and devices, don't work. The, they don't work. Or, yeah, right. And that's why we have uh, the FDA, or why even if we didn't have the FDA, lots of people like you and me would demand on some level of uh, proof, some level of evidence. Yes, this right. is one of the good drugs. Well, so the, the thing is, now if you're if you're, this if, you're procedure... if you're terminally ill, well then you know certainly. Um, uh, and you've exhausted all the other treatment uh, options, and certainly you want to get that's, into a trial. Yeah, that's a uh, time but, to but try. Not everybody. It. I guess. I guess I shouldn't say certainly because not everybody does want to do that. Those can also be. Um, well, uh, trials can also be grueling, and some people right, decide exactly. they want to spend their last days not doing it. Exactly. But the thing, the point was here too, is that this procedure had been used in Europe, and the doctors said if we, if my husband could not get it done here, that they would recommend that he go to Europe to have it done. So I think it was started in Germany originally and had been successful in Germany. But he was the second patient at University of Virginia, and they did a fabulous job. So anyway, okay, let's talk about one of the other things that's going on right now that has to do with these uh, drugs and availability to people who are terminally ill. And that's something called the right to try, which is something I think that is making its way through Congress right now. You want to tell us what that's about, Michael? Yes, and that actually has to do with what we've just been discussing, Absolutely. which is that there are terminally ill patients who've exhausted all available treatment.
treatment options uh, and are looking for uh, are looking for hope and have found it in some drugs that have been developed but haven't yet made it through the FDA's approval process. They would like access to those medications, and the FDA often tells them, no, you cannot have it. Now, sometimes they could get access to those drugs if they qualify for a clinical trial, but not all do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can get access to those drugs through the FDA's Compassionate Use Program, uh, which, which exists specifically for these people. But there's but there are problems. Not everybody qualifies for trials or the compassionate use program. And uh, even if they might, it's hard for them to learn about these trials and, and, and these programs. Because, uh, because as, as, as we said, this is, this is a uh, process that's designed just to satisfy a regulator and the, uh, the companies that are doing these trials and developing these drugs, they're not yet focusing on patients and saying, hey, look at what we have for you. And so it's hard for patients even to learn about these options. And as astounding as it might seem, the FDA does deny terminally ill patients the right to choose an unproven treatment. These are people with nothing left to lose. Uh, They have a, a, a terminal diagnosis. They want to try something so that they can have more uh, that, that might have some uh, curative power that uh, that might extend their lives so they can have more time with their families. Uh, and yet the FDA is standing in their way, which is uh, which is really an assault on their dignity. And so what Congress is trying to do is they're trying to uh, put in place rules that say if someone has a terminal illness, then the FDA uh, has to to allow broader access to drugs that are in development. And uh, and this seems like it should be a no-brainer, but again, the FDA does have an argument for not allowing Mm -hmm. people to uh, terminally ill, not not allowing all terminally ill patients to access those drugs. I don't think it's a convincing argument, and I could explain why, but they do have an argument. Their argument is that we'll never get all the testing done. We'll never find out if this stuff works unless we can uh, restrict access to the drug until the manufacturer goes through sufficient testing to show that it, 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 it meets the FDA's criteria for safety and efficacy. Uh, that's a rather cold attitude, but I can understand it from one from Well, but from their perspective, that's, it's compassionate. From right. their perspective, it's compassionate because otherwise... The market would be flooded with you all sorts of medical treatments it. that don't yeah. work. So yeah. Snake oil and people would be given false right. hope, and, and, and we wouldn't be able to separate the wheat from the chaff, and patients would suffer. But the, the problem with that rationale or that argument, from my perspective, is this. There's a, pro, there's a challenge involved in, in collecting all of this information on whether a drug works or whether it doesn't. It requires expensive testing, expensive in terms of time and money, and uh, and and one of the ways that the FDA tries to get over that 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 hump, get over that challenge of conducting these expensive trials, is it doesn't just make the drug companies pay for them uh, before they happen, and then in fact make patients pay for the cost of those trials by waiting longer to get the drugs and mm-hmm. and, uh, and paying more for them once they arrive. Well, let me just also, ask you: we, we only works- we only have a minute. We only have a couple of minutes, a minute left, actually. Do you think that this is going to pass? And and is this this is going to mean that the that the terminally ill patient 
may get access to these medications before they've been finally approved? I think that it is. Uh, I, I think that it is possible, plausible that Congress will uh, pass some form of a right to try bill uh, this year, uh, because there's been action in both the House and the Senate on on this legislation. And so, and if that happens, it'll, it'll take a modest step in the right direction. It'll be a good thing for consumers. Michael, I, time has flown by. It's great to have you on the program and, and giving us so much information and you providing a lot of insight, insight to how the process works and why it's in place. I mean, there there's a need for a process here. No, no question about it. Thank you so much for being with us, Michael. I, my guest has been Michael Cannon. He's He's the Director of Health Policy Studies at Cato Institute. I'm Shirley Rooker. You've been listening to Of Consuming Interest right here on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Shirley at callforaction.org. That's Shirley at callforaction.org. And thank you for being with us. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.